Good Dog. Welcome to Good Dog Talk. I'm Fiona Mathias and this week I'm talking to David Jackson, whose website, allaboutdogfood.co.uk, is an independent voice in a sea of vested interests. After 10 years working in the mainstream pet food business as a nutritionist, in 2012, David launched All About Dog Food, packed, I might add, with some seriously useful information about the food we give to our dogs. Before we got down to the nitty-gritty of guts, protein and faeces, I started by asking David what drove him to set himself up as an independent. Well, as you mentioned, I've been working in um, the pet industry for quite a while as a nutritionist. A big part of that was day in, day out, was answering questions and queries, dealing with problems from the customers of those companies and potential customers. So they weren't just dog owners. Obviously, a lot were dog owners, but also people in, in the pet care industry. So vets, um, pet shop owners and their staff, trainers, behaviorists. Um, groomers even. It just became really clear answering the same questions over and over again, whether it was over the phone or at dog shows or various other seminars and things. It was the same questions all the time. And it didn't matter whether it was from the pet owners themselves or somebody who's really involved in the industry and, and really should know things. There was, there was the same questions all the time, basic, fairly basic questions, but also a real sense that reliable, unbiased nutritional uh, information is very, very difficult to come by. No matter whether you're a vet or whether it's your first puppy or whatever. Mm. Um, So the site was really just about that. It was just dealing with these these questions that kept coming up, trying to provide a source for reliable information, just trying to fill in some blanks. Mm -hmm. It also became really clear just how many dogs there are out there that really do have problems with their diets. And, and I think I, I mentioned to you in some information that, uh, before this interview that like 31% of dog owners, they don't know what their dog's weight is and or what their body condition is. So that sort of indicates that also they're not really thinking about how their dogs are being fed. Yeah. Um, I mean, the UK, it, it's, it's a whole microcosm of the of the pet world you've got everyone from um people like my own family before i really um tuned into uh, nutrition who didn't really think about pet nutrition at all the dog was more or less regarded as a waste disposal unit for the house um and buy whatever was cheap and um top up with whatever was left over no matter Mm -hmm. what went into the dog bowl for i think for decades that was how we all dealt with it it was just oh this is on special great and yeah but then at the other side of the spectrum there's people like me now and there's people like a lot of my followers that really do spend a lot of time thinking about diet and there are a lot of people that visit my site so that is uh you know that's testament to the number of people that are now researching their uh, their dog's diet why is the dog's digestive system different to ours sort of what are the differences in it is it built for meat you know should we be thinking meat first meat first or or, you know uh, should we be actually be far more nuanced about how we look at the gastrointestinal tract well um i mean it's it's this is certainly an area of pretty big debate has been for a long time um but 
most or virtually all of the scientific evidence points towards dogs being primarily geared towards meat consumption. Um, they have a what's called a, a carnivorous bias. So although there are signs and there is good evidence that they can handle almost anything you throw at them, really, they're, they're very, very capable in terms of their dietary needs. But um, it's, it's, they are definitely geared more for meat. They, they are, um, evolved from the wolf about 15,000 years ago. There's a little bit of discussion about that as well, but in the ballpark of 15,000 years ago. And they still share, although they've, they've, they have changed physiologically from the wolf, there is a lot of similarities between the modern dog and the, uh, the original timber wolves. So, um, yeah, when you're dealing with your dog's diet, I certainly um, suggest catering for what they're best at um, rather than just providing what they can cope with. So that would be meat first. And then, I mean, we've all seen our dogs out in the wild. They, they are, they, they do search out alternatives, not alternatives, but additions to meat. They're not just, you know, they're not pure meat eaters. They'll eat berries, they'll eat fallen fruits, they'll yeah. dig for roots and, and uh, leaves and, you know, graze on herbs and things if they're available. So, yes, the core of the, core of the diet should be meat in my opinion, mm-hmm. and then build around that other um, bio-appropriate is, is the buzzword. So foods that they are, uh, that are nutritious to them, that they're capable of, of digesting and processing and that are beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter whether you've got a chihuahua or a Great Dane. The system works in the same way. Yeah, um, certainly as far as I'm concerned, uh, that's exactly right. You've, it doesn't, of course, the, the appearance of dogs has changed dramatically over the last yeah. you know, few hundred or even further back years. But internally, it's, it's more just a matter of scale. Um, this is why so many dog foods or almost all dog foods are for all breeds. Of course, there are brands that go in for diets for specific groups of dogs or diets for specific breeds of dogs. But I mean, in my opinion, that's certainly a, uh, a mark more about marketing. The the science behind it seems a little bit sketchy. But yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, one size pretty much fits all. There are exceptions. There's um like some breeds that do struggle a little bit with certain nutrients. Um, take uh, Dalmatian, for example. Okay. Um, yeah. They have a difficulty processing purine. Um, so, with s- certain Dalmatians, do not all. Mm-hmm. So, with Dalmatians, you might want to steer a bit more towards a food that's tailored for them, or at least low pro- uh, lo- low purine. Uh, Bedlington Terriers have a similar thing with uh, with copper copper storage disease. So, mm-hmm. again, you might want a food that is specifically made for them or at least low copper but for most dogs in in you know 99.9 percent of dogs a single good food will do the trick okay now the big question how much protein should we be giving our dogs you know i have a border collie who's got a lot of energy and anxiety um and, uh, you know, I say, oh, you know, I get told you should uh, put him on, you know, something lower, lower protein. How much protein are you feeding him? And I go, oh, well, I think it's about 22%. But everybody seems to have that 
the protein is the big question and we keep on asking it and we never seem to come up with the, the right answer. Is it more about the, the quality rather than quantity? Where do we go with that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Certainly when I was um, being introduced to the world of dog foods so and near on 20 years ago, everything was about protein. Um, the specific percentage of protein. But the problem is if you, if you read that on a, on a label, it really doesn't tell you that much. It tells you the, the percentage of the, finished product, um, of the finished product that is of protein, you know, that is made of amino acids. But it doesn't tell you where that's from. It doesn't tell you how easy it is to digest. It doesn't tell you what proportion of it your dog can actually use. You know, protein, there was this study done years and years ago in America, and they managed to make a, um, a food, in inverted commas, that would, when you analyzed it, it had a perfectly good protein and fat and everything co um, content, but it would, the protein entirely came from old leather shoes. Whoa. So that just goes to show, but if you looked just at the protein content, you'd think, oh, great. But it was almost entirely unusable by the dog. So I suggest not really paying much attention to that. There are ways of gauging how much protein the usable amount of protein in the food and that's more about um, looking at the ingredients list really so you look at the ingredients list and as long as there's a reasonably good a reasonably high amount of um, meat there then you can be fairly confident that the, um, the amount of protein is you know it's it's enough for your dog you too much protein everyone used to be obsessed with that um, it doesn't seem to be the issue that people once thought it was people used to associate high protein diets with problems because the only high protein diets around were really low budget working dog foods mm -hmm. and they didn't use meat because meat was expensive yeah. they they topped up the protein levels with things like soya things like um you know pea protein and maize gluten and things like that right. and that was the thing that was causing the problem it wasn't the protein itself it was the type of protein but now you look at the um the the pet food shelves and there are a lot of dogs doing extremely well on very high protein diets, but the protein that they're getting now is good meat protein. It's the kind of protein that dogs are built to get in abundance and to use, um, and it doesn't cause problems. So rather than looking at the percentage, you're quite right that quality is, is key. And um, yeah, pr protein percentage would be quite far down my list of priorities when looking at a new food. Okay. Actually, that brings us to the ingredients list. Yeah, yeah. Um, dog food producers, um, they spend, especially the larger companies, spend a lot of money finding out what customers are looking for. So they've got two ways of uh, dealing with that when they find a consumer trend. Let's say you're looking for meat. They can either put meat in the food. That's route number one. And some, some companies do that. And then they'll obviously brag about it as much as they can, or they'll make it look like they put a lot of meat in the food, which is, you know, it, it costs them less and it probably has about the same effect. So they do spend a lot of time on their nowadays on their websites, but um, especially on the packaging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people do judge the book by its cover. And there are a number of ways that you can, um, you, you know, I mean, marketing is one thing, the branding itself, you can, 
trigger all sorts of um, responses just through the type of the font you use and the color and things. Yes. But there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. terms that are used, um, you know, sort of willy nearly all over the packaging that have very little um, legal um, control. Yes, um, but they know, make it, they can make things sound so nutritious and you know like i mean every food wants to make you think that it's the or every company wants to make you think that their food is the best mm. and um you know their packaging is the way they do that um so it it can get very tricky i mean things like um you know when you see good for you good for skin and coat or, or you know promotes heart health and things there's very little guidance or um legal definition for that you can pretty much put that on any food because there will be somewhere in the food there will be a nutrient that has been proven to be good for joints but that's not to say that the food is necessarily made with your dog's joints in mind or anything like that <clears throat> terms like uh, with natural nutrients that means that one of the nutrients in there is in inverted commas natural uh, you know at least one but Anything can be natural, you know, sawdust could be natural. You know, things like um, human-grade meat, that's used quite a lot. Yes, but, it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it really is, yeah. But mm. the thing is, by European law, all meat that enters the dog food, uh, the pet food industry, comes from or has to uh, meet the same criteria as those for the human food industry. They all start from the same point. So right. all meat that goes into any dog food that's available in the UK is human grade. There's some companies that make a song and dance about it, and there's some that don't, but it, it's all meat. So uh, things like with chicken, if you see with in front of a term, it means that there's a minimum of 4% in the food. So if you see with chicken, there's 4% chicken, great. The other 96% unaccounted for. So there's lots of things. So the, the cut to the chase, basically ignore everything on the packaging <laughs> except for the ingredients list so you go straight to the ingredients list sometimes <laughs> they call it the ingredients list sometimes they call it composition but it's basically it's just a list of ingredients and that's where you'll find all of the uh all of the reliable information mm. so the ingredients list is really the only place where there's any rigorous control and um and vigilance um, so in that's the law. Where legally they have to be bound to rights. They have to, they have to stick to certain rules, but they're a wily bunch. So they are, they find ways of, of manipulating it within the law to make it look better. A, a lot do. Yeah. It, a lot of companies spend a lot of time polishing their ingredients list. Mm -hmm. it's, it's nothing to do with the formulation. It's actually sort of not dissimilar to human food as well. People, you know, that. Yeah, absolutely. The way I mean, of the world, isn't it? It is the way of the world. I mean, of, of every company wants to put, to frame their products in the best light possible. Mm. And especially when every other company is doing it, you'd be a fool not to. So there are ways of spotting. I mean, there's tactics they use and there's ways of spotting them. But things like you mentioned um so first of all ignore everything you're on the ingredients list the first thing you want to look for is clarity if you if there's any ambiguous terms any terms that could mean a wide variety of things um i'm talking about terms like meat and animal derivatives or derivatives mm -hmm. of vegetable origin 
or uh, just cereals, for example. Cereals covers a huge amount of different ingredients. So if you see any of those, that's a red flag straight away. So you want clear terms, clear terms that can really only mean one thing. Uh, that's the first thing. Ideally, you want some percentages, especially on the higher up ingredients. By higher up, I mean the first ingredients, because all ingredients have to be listed in descending order of their weight in the, in the mix, if you see what I mean. So okay. um, if meat is the first ingredient, it means it's the most abundant ingredient. Right. So you're um, starting off from a good point <laughs> if meat's up there, but if cereal yeah, that, comes first, then you're... Exactly. Yeah, so that's the, that's the message that I and uh, my fellow sort of campaigners have been putting out. And more and more people are looking for, for meat as the first ingredient. But manufacturers have cottoned on to that. And now they, and so they've found ways of making meat the first ingredient, even though it's not quite as, um, you know, rich in meat as you might expect. So what you mentioned, they, well, grain, uh, no, grain splitting is a different thing. Um, it's sort of the reverse of this. The uh, meat grouping or ingredient grouping where you grab a whole bunch of um, ingredients that are loosely related, and you stick them in a bracket. Mm-hmm. And so the bracketed ingredient, the total percentage of that, pushes it up the ingredients list. Right. Um, it, it's hard to sort of demonstrate just, um, you know, it's, it's easier if you've got sort of uh, visuals. But mm-hmm. basically, if you see the start of the ingredients list, it reads something along the lines of, you know, chicken 50%. And then mm-hmm. inside brackets, it'll say fresh chicken, 25%, chicken meal, 10%, chicken fat, 5%, chicken broth, 5%, and then it goes on and on and on. And, you know, chicken broth is essentially water, it's stock. Um, Mm. Chicken fat is an ingredient that's added afterwards and doesn't really provide, you know, the proteins and things, the the meat is what you, you know, that you want from the meat. It's still a good ingredient, but it shouldn't really be grouped with the, the meat ingredients, if you see what I mean. Yes. So... What you end up with is this all of these ingredients that would individually be placed much further down the ingredient list, but now they appear at the top. And the first thing you read is chicken 50%, and you're thinking, great, chicken is 15% chicken, half chicken. But actually, uh, that's not not really the case. So you've just, like basically it's buyer beware. You've just got to got to look at that stuff with a cynical eye. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. Uh, you know, it is a minefield. And if you, if you are equipped, then you can steer through it. But you really you do need to do quite a lot of work. And if you're doing this with every single pet product that you pick up, every single pet food and treat that you pick yeah. up, you've got to go through and try to decipher what's really in there. It's a handful. So this is, this is what the site's, you know, this is what it's, it's there to do, the site does all of the math for you it, it, it reorders the ingredients um, so that it, it can then generate a score um, to give you a, a, an accurate idea of how well this one stacks up against the other ones in the market yes and then it's just down to you it's your choice after that yeah you must have seen or oh, quite a lot of changes even over the time that the site's been going. So tell me something about sort of what you've seen, the changing landscape that, that you've witnessed in your time of being in this business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been, is f- the pet food industry has changed, um, you know, 
beyond all recognition in the time since I entered it. I mean, really, it was changing maybe 10, 15, 20 years. It started changing before that. Up until then, up until the 90s, let's probably the early 90s, there was really only a few big producers. There was only a few producers in general, and they produced very much similar products, um, you know, basic dry foods, basic tins. It, was, it wasn't until the 90s that people really, or that producers started looking towards um, natural and uh, gearing more towards the natural scene you started, and, and health, health foods. That was, became a big thing. Um, it was at the same time that we really started looking into our own foods. Before that, foods for people and for dogs. It was just convenience. It was, it was all about convenience. And then all of a sudden, the, the health revolution started early 90s, maybe, maybe earlier than that. And, uh, and then it crossed over to our dogs. So I started in the pet food industry, um, I believe 2002, 2003. Um, it was actually in your account here. 2002, there you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just remind myself. Um, and at that point, um, the so I, I, I joined one of the new sort of um, up and coming natural brands and they were steering away from all of the, you know, the, the additives and all of the, the ingredients that were already then known to be more associated with um, dietary problems, things like wheat and soya and things like that. But since I started the site, it's really just exploded. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's driven by the uh, human food industry where people are taking more and more interest in their own diets. Uh, they're more and more conscious of what they're eating and they're becoming more and more conscious of what their pets are eating. They're asking the same questions about their pets' diets that they've been applying to their own diets and coming up with the same answers that, um, you know, convenience is not necessarily a good thing. And, um, you know, you should be trying to dial into what the body is supposed to be getting rather than just what's easy to give it and, and what just tastes good. You know, um, mm. <clears throat> pets, they, oh, this is sort of going off at a bit of a tangent, but, um, you know, for a long time, the pet food industry was driven by flavor. It's just, um, in fact, when I, as I was growing up, I think the, um, one of the biggest pet food taglines was, um, nine out of 10 cats prefer it or something. Right? Yes, yes, something I remember, like yeah. Imagine applying the same tagline to a, a, a child's food, you know, nine out of 10 toddlers would eat this over, you know, carrots. It could, <laughs> you know, that's not, that, that doesn't mean it's good for them. It just means it tastes good. And dogs, just like people, we uh, unfortunately have the curse of uh, liking foods that aren't particularly good for us, things like fats and salts and sugars. So up until the this sort of the the revolution in the in the nineties, um, that's all pet food was about. It was about making dogs like it, make our brand more desirable to the dog than the next brand. Yeah. And uh, and that was you know it was a race to the bottom. It was mm. it was not a good scene. Anyway, coming back to the present, so or to the near present. Uh, there's definitely been a massive shift. There's the explosion of raw that you mentioned started um, before I began the site, but it it's really taken off recently. Of course, people have been feeding raw. Well, people have been feeding raw forever, but people have been interested in the in the bath diet and things for a long time. Mm -hmm. But it's really taken off since the um, the since producers started making complete raw foods. Um, up until that point, raw food 
raw feeding was, uh, it required quite a lot of work. It required mm -hmm. a certain amount of expertise to get the balance right. Um, now there are countless producers making complete foods, foods with everything your dog needs in there. They've made it convenient by producing the complete food. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's not quite as convenient as your traditional dry, um, but you know, you've still got to defrost it and transporting it. If you ever need to transport it for holidays and things, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and you, you have, you know, you've got to keep fridge space and things, freezer space. But this is what I'm saying, you know, the trade-off. People are more than happy to trade off a little bit of work for, for quality and for the health of their pets. As well as raw, uh, there's a big trend. I actually run a poll on the site recently. Well, I run it every year and I've tracked the results. The, the poll just asks, what do you feed? And then it gives them a list of the different okay. categories, you know, raw being one and then dry, ex dry extruded, which is the conventional dry form and, and things like that. And over the years, I mean, over the eight years that the site's been running, there's already been a huge trend. Basically, the traditional dry food, which was absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's still the biggest seller in the world, you know, by, by some considerable margin. But it was, it absolutely dominated the pet food mm -hmm. scene just imagine. eight years ago. But certainly with our visitors and from what I can tell with the um, the pet owning population as a whole, that is on the decline, gradually, gradually. Um, is and that, it seems is that the dry complete um, extruded that's on the decline or dry complete as a whole, all the, all um, the production methods? Uh, well, no, the, it's, it's the dry extruded. Um, mm -hmm. So dry extruded, almost all dry foods are extruded, unless it specifically says on the bag that it's baked or, you know, freeze dried or something like that. Yeah, it's quite you, difficult you, to find those, isn't it? There, there aren't yeah, it is, many it is. of them they're, around. Yeah, they're, they're, they are quite niche. But essentially, that's, that's how to identify a dry, uh, an extruded food, because, you know, it's not a term that most um, pet owners are really familiar with. Um, mm. But if you're, food, if you're feeding a dry food, and it's not cold pressed or freeze dried or baked, then it's probably extruded. Mm. Um, but those foods are really on the decline, basically because they're seen by many as um, the more processed form. They, they have to undergo quite high temperatures and pressures in order to get processed in that way. And the argument is that, um, that the natural ingredients and natural nutrients that are in the ingredients in there are destroyed through the processing or may be mm. destroyed through the processing. So the alternative dry foods, which involve, they're still dry, they still have all the convenience of a dry food, but they involve less intensive processing. They have definitely seen a rise and there's okay. more and more of them springing up all the time. They're mm -hmm. quite new um, to the pet food scene. Things like cold pressed is, is probably the next biggest one. Maybe with baked is not that dissimilar to um, extrusion, but it is, uh, it is a little bit less intensive. And it, that's, getting, that's gaining popularity. Cold pressed has really taken off and there's more and more cold pressed brands springing up here and there. Then there's the really sort of premium dry foods or you know, the top end ones, which is freeze dried and air dried. Okay. They are really not cooked at all. They're just dried and that's how they preserve the foods. That's how they turn them into dry foods. But it, with both of those, but especially with freeze drying, it's a very, uh, very gentle process. And so it, it really, um, the idea is that it 
keeps all of the nutrients intact, um, but they do cost a yeah. lot. Yeah, yeah. So those ones are on the rise, whereas traditional or conventional extruded is on the decline. Wet food is on the rise again. Um, oh, really? Way, way That's back. interesting. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. there was, I think people sort of saw it as messy, that, you know, in terms of or smelly, their kitchen, having to put bits in the fridge and... Yeah. That's interesting yeah. that it's coming back. Yeah, it's um, that I think, I mean, previously, like dry food, wet food was, um, it was kind of a budget option for a lot. You know, there was the mm. penny chums, it was those, um, those chub rolls that you'd get from the, the feed merchant or the supermarket or whatever. Yeah. But nowadays, um, there are a lot of very high-end wet foods coming increasingly onto the market. It, of course, is the pasteurization. So you do have to... Um, cook the food for a certain amount of time in order to destroy the bacteria in there but apart from that it's it's arguably i mean the the advocates of of wet feeding along with raw feeding would argue that it's uh, more natural because ingredients in their natural state are not dried yes uh, they yeah. are they contain moisture yeah. and some dogs do struggle with getting enough moisture if they're on a dry based diet which mm. can then cause um, certain health problems so Wet foods, raw foods, uh, they provide all of that moisture in roughly, uh, you know, natural ratio. And they, they, because they don't, uh, because of the way they're pasteurized, they don't need any um, artificial preservatives or anything. So that's also good for their sort of natural credentials. And um, yeah, now the wet food, the premium wet food market, the natural high-end, high meat wet food tins, pouches, trays, is has been taking off for a long time it's, it's mm. it, um seems to be really doing well um so not so much of the the budget option anymore the average spend from a pet owner is definitely on the increase the amount spent by pet owners has really um increased dramatically over the last um well for a long time for decades um but it continues to rise and it's, and it's rising more and more quickly. But the volume of pet foods being sold is not increasing that quickly. So it's, it's more about, you know, people are, spend, are happy to spend more on um, just on leveling up their, their pet's diet. So naturally, pet businesses are aware of this and they're producing more and more expensive options the thing is with pet food is that it's not always uh, you know quality and price don't always go hand in hand so there are definitely foods that cost a lot that aren't particularly great um, there's mm -hmm. plenty of those around right. um, they market themselves as uh, very high end but take a look at the ingredients and they're very much run of the mill and there are, are equally some reasonably good budget options that are that their ingredients would warrant a much higher price so again i mean coming back to the site it's it's all about showing that even if even if you do want to be on a budget there's still there's always options for giving your dog a decent diet no matter what your budget is there are some very good budget options out there okay well let's we've covered a lot of ground actually uh, in all this have you got any advice to dog owners, not only to stop dogs making a noise while a podcast is being recorded, like mine here, but how to stop fretting about what they're feeding their dog? How can they relax about it? Or should they not relax about it? Should they actually be thinking a lot about it? 
Um, no, I think, I think it's important not to um, spend too much time unnecessarily thinking about your pet's diet. Um, if there's a problem, of course, then you, you, you should definitely approach the subject um, and give it, uh, you know, due diligence and, uh, and work out what would be the best uh, solution for your pet for that pro particular problem. But the key is, if there isn't a problem, then uh, there's really very little to gain by changing foods. Now, when I say problem, um, there's, there's a lot of um, signs that you can look out for that there might be a dietary problem. Now, a lot of these signs, for, for, they've become for many years quite widespread in the pet community. And so they're not really seen as a problem anymore. They're just seen as part of being a dog. For example, the um, obesity epidemic that's going on with pets at the moment. Yes, there it are, continues. Yeah, and it, it's just year on year, there's more and more overweight dogs. And it's not because, you know, owners are going out of their way to get their dogs fat. It, it's, it's not even a question of not being bothered about the dog being overweight. It's just that people don't realize their dogs are overweight. And that's because people have become so accustomed to seeing overweight dogs that it's now the norm. It's their, it's their mental image of a dog. Yes. It's an overweight dog. And in fact, when they see a you know, slim, lean, healthy dog, the impulse is that that dog must be malnourished. Um, but it's not. That, that should be our, our, our norm that mm. we aim towards. And there's lots of other things as well. Things like um, a scratch, an itchy dog. You know, that, that's, oh, the dog's always itching. He's always itched. He's always chewed paws. He's always scratched his ears. Um, he's always, his eyes have always ran. Um, he's always had bad breath and lots of tartar. And, you know, I have to, of course, I have to empty the anal glands, you know, once every two months or something. Or, um, yeah, he's always shed all year round. Or And actually uh, all these are indicators that yeah, dog absolutely. isn't 100%. Yeah. Exactly. So if you see those, if you see dandruff, if you see, um, if your dog is regularly vomiting, of course, the the stool the poo um, mm, yeah. that's that's a real um, <laughs> look at it basically <laughs> yeah it, it really uh, does demonstrate what's going on inside there's lots of resources online that will tell you what different types of poo indicate <laughs> but basically if you've got a good consistency so not too hard not too loose um, and not too smelly and a reasonable sort of earthy color mm. then everything's fine basically. If any of those things are not quite right, then maybe everything's not fine. If you find that your dog is exhibiting any of these signs for an extended period, then there's a very good chance that it is down to food. And at that point, then you will want to fret a little hmm. because small problems like that can become big problems in the long term. But if you don't have any of those problems, even if your dog is on a food that others would say is terrible or that even my site says is terrible. If your dog is doing well on it and there's no, none of those signs and you're happy with it and the dog's happy with it, stick with it. Because even if you change, the very best you could hope for is getting back to where you are now. Um, you know, mm -hmm. dif different dogs do better on different foods. They always have and they always will. So the trick is to find one that works for your dog. And if you've done that, then there's nothing to worry about. But do keep an eye just you know every so often have a look at your dog's weight 
have a look, see if there's a, a, a you know, the, the telltale signs, is there, if, is there a good visible waistline when you look mm -hmm. down? Is there a good tuck to the tummy when you're looking? Can you feel the last two ribs, uh, things like that? If not, then, uh, you know, you might want to have a look at losing some weight. And if you start to see any of those, um, any of those signs, if, another one is when you're stroking the dog, does mm -hmm. your hand leave with a, you know, is it greasy or is it smelly? So many of these things, you know, dogs will go their entire life with all of these problems and it'll be, oh, that's just who he is. But it's not. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for your time because uh, there was some brilliant stuff in there. My thanks to David Jackson of All About Dog Food, leaving us with plenty of food for thought there. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to Good Dog Talk via your usual podcast provider. Good dog.